Hey, DER Task Force members. We have a fun one today with one of our own New York City founders, Andy Frank, who's the founder and president of Sealed. It's rare that you find a true DER nerd that can go blow for blow with our three favorite hosts by laying out energy industry history lessons, spar directly with James on heat pump technology, and even take over the opening quote. I haven't met Andy, but early in my clean tech startup journey, I met with his co-founder, Lauren, who blew me away with the sealed business model of shared energy efficiency savings financing, which is a tough nut to crack. They are both fighting the good fight and having a ton of success and fun doing it. Before we jump into one of our longer episodes, I want to give a few shout outs to our newest paid subscribers to the DER Task Force Substack, Dan, Alex, and Ben. There are many others that didn't disclose their names, but thank you all so much for supporting our community, and we hope to see you all on our Slack and at our upcoming meetups. Here's Duncan to start us off. Hey, everybody. Welcome to DER Task Force. Do you mean that the Today we're joined... <laughs> the Thunderdome. It's not the DER yes. Task Force, man. We're in the Thunderdome. <laughs> Another edition. Today we're joined with Andy Frank, CEO and founder of Sealed. Is it sealed homes or just sealed? Uh, it is sealed early on, actually. So two, two corrections already. One is sealed, not We not do not sealed. do much research. We're, we're uh, sorry. And two, um, the, the, the president, uh, not CEO, that uh, my, my co-founder, Lauren, is, is, our, is our wonderful CEO. But we were called sealed homes for probably the first couple years of our business before we got the URL, sealed.com. And so uh, thank you for mm. saying that's a huge pet peeve of mine, actually, people calling me sealed home. So we're starting off the pod in a, on a great. All right, we set the record straight. That's <laughs> yeah. good. All right, great, great start. Sophia, that was your fault as our <laughs> research analyst. Um, okay, so another great start will be for the first time ever, our, our opening quote guessing game is going to be led by our guest. Andy has one for us. So Andy, why don't you take do. it away? This is a quote that I saw today. The quote is, what's the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if in the end, all we're willing to do is stand around and wait for them to come true? I like that's it. awesome. That's a, yeah, that's I feel like we have no shot at guessing who it is. <laughs> well you said it was we in your email signature. What it's with regard to. Or someone's email signature? Is that like their their own quote in their own email signature? Because that'd no, be hilarious. No, no. That that would be pretty uh, <laughs> that'd be pretty, that'd great. Be pretty incredible. No. I, I can give you a I can tell you whose email signature. I don't know if that's gonna that's gonna help. Yeah, um, let's get a hint. Yeah. It's uh, the email signature of my friend, friend and former colleague uh, Zeke Housefather, who is all about uh, energy, energy Twitter life. It's oh yeah, Zeke is what he's at. I think Breakthrough Institute. He's now? also messing around. With he does like climate stairs, modeling around and stuff. With Stripe and you know a few other things as well. It's got to be like a climate scientist. Like, you know, are they well known? Would we know the person? I don't personally know I'm this gonna, person. No. I'm going to go, okay, I'm I'm just going to go Michael Oppenheimer, who's like a big IPPC guy and was my thesis advisor. And he's sometimes quoted. <laughs> <laughs> not, so I feel not, like he's a rogue guest. <laughs> who's, the, who's the climate scientist at Columbia who was like the first one to kind of like testify to Congress in like the early 90s or late 80s. Everyone knows this person and I can't think Who of it. Who is it? Yeah. Okay, Just well, clearly yeah, not that. John Put Kerry. us out of our misery, Andy. What is... Bill Gates. Uh, yeah, I think you stumped us, man. So the quote is from a, a man named F. Sherwood Rowland. Jesus. Um, who 
According to Google, people ask, what did F. Sherwood Rowland do? And the answer is, in 1974, Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina demonstrated that CFC gases, freons, have a damaging effect on ozone in the atmosphere. So I think oh. the scientist that nice. Part of like All right, well, we're, you know, directionally correct. Yeah. Wrong era. Yeah, but a scientist. It's all right. By the way, James Hansen is who I was thinking of. That's that's what I was thinking of. I don't know of, any of these people. Still are. wrong, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Andy, it's it's awesome to have Great you to here. Hear. I think we have some fun sort of like intro stuff, but could you give us just, I feel like most of our audience is going to know what Seal does, kind of understand the basic business model, but could you give us like the two-minute elevator pitch for anybody who doesn't just so we could get them up to speed? Yeah, of course. So Seal is a climate tech company on a mission to stop home energy waste and electrify all homes. Uh, we do that by designing, managing, and financing home weatherization and electrification projects. Um, so we basically make it easy and affordable for people to be more comfortable while using less energy. We focus really on deep retrofits, so things like insulation, air sealing, obviously heat pumps uh, that can reduce energy use by 50%. Uh, and we take try to take homes completely off of fossil fuels. So our team designs the right solutions for a customer fully remotely. We like to say we were doing remote before it was cool. And then we match them with the best local contractors once they're ready to move forward with the project. And then we cover the entire upfront costs. Um, so we pay for the project, we pay the contractors directly. Um, and then what really kind of makes us special is it's completely performance-based. So we're only paid back based on the actual energy waste that we're able to reduce. So if, if we invest in a project and no energy is reduced, we don't make a dime. So we're really trying to build trust in the quality of the projects and the performance of the projects through, through performance financing. Oh, very relevant to your quote about uh, um, <laughs> predicting and you know simulating results, yeah, yeah. but then actually yeah, doing we, something we, about we, it. We cool, cool. In, uh, in monetizing predictions, that's that's what so we do. So you just stare at baselines all day, or <laughs> some days, some days I, I try to be more productive than than that. Uh, so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we look at a lot of we look at a lot of baseline data, and there are definitely some funky uh, energy baseline problems that we've that we've solved or at least tried to solve. You know, nice. A, we didn't we didn't talk about that in our like our initial call but like we may need to nerd out on some baseline stuff uh later in the app yeah i was like yeah, a former gets, evaluation person i'm like i'm all in well <laughs> hopefully we'll talk about some emnv at some point uh today but uh the, you you don't uh you don't really fully appreciate the the scale of the problem until you start dealing with oil data that's the that's the oh, whole part man. <laughs> all right well you guys just warn me when the mnv is coming up and i'll sign <laughs> off for a little while perfect oh yeah <laughs> All right, let's let's kick this off. We've got some fun games. Andy, this is perhaps the most important question you'll answer today. When did you get derpilled? So I got derpilled in 2008, I would say, but I Ooh. had kind of an allergic reaction to it, if I'm being, if I'm being honest. Um, you had a bad trip. Yeah, I had a bad trip. The yeah. side effects. Yeah, yeah. I, had a, I, had a pretty, I had a pretty bad trip. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I, I guess maybe we'll get into M&V a little bit sooner than, than we thought, Colleen. <laughs> Bye, but, Duncan. Um, basically, my story is I joined a startup originally called Climate Culture, and then we, we changed the name to Efficiency 2.0 in 2008. Um, and one of the reasons I joined was because I'd started getting like really, I got, you know, the, the term didn't exist then, but I got derpilled back then uh, to get really excited about the growth of, you know, of essentially DER markets. We didn't, again, we didn't really call it that back then, but I was particularly interested in energy efficiency. And I thought, wow, 
we could create a company, you know, back then all the rage was creating kind of like social networking, gamification companies, right? We created this gamified app basically to help people save energy and carbon. And the idea was, okay, great. We can get people to sign up on that. They'll share their show with their friends. And then we can monetize through these markets that are of course gonna you know, start to explode when it comes to, to monetizing energy reductions of, of various kinds. And so I was really excited to kind of like help make the business of that, of that work and joined in 2008. And so one of the first things that, that I did was really get the process started to try to qualify what we were doing in what I thought was the most advanced market at the time, which was the Connecticut class three rec market, uh, which was a, you know, called a rec market, but it was for, for white tags. It was for energy efficiency credits. Um, and so I was like, okay, great. This is, you know, I was like, you know, I'm 25 and brilliant. And all I need to do is do this filing to the PUC and they'll, they'll allow it to happen. Oh, and we'll man. just be printing money and saving the world and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so that was my kind of like derp moment. And then I, I kind of had an allergic reaction because, you know, obviously I got my, my butt whooped by the, by the regulators and, and by the utilities but while, while doing this. Um, and basically, you know, it took like a year, which is actually, you know, I learned later is actually pretty fast for our petition to go from filed to, to rejected. And uh, <laughs> basically the, the, the biggest, the thing that really, uh, uh, really hit me outside the head was that the big thing in our petition was we wanted the regulators to allow um, what we called at the time large-scale data analysis. You might call it like meter-based MNV or, or basically like, God forbid, looking at real data to, to be able to tell whether whether a home saves energy. Um, we wanted to use, you know, essentially real real meter data to determine whether homes saved energy because we were taking a behavioral approach to, to reducing, reducing energy and carbon. And the regulators in their order denying basically everything we asked for said that actually deemed savings, for, for those of you who don't know, is essentially made up savings, right? Um, were actually more accurate than large scale data analysis or a meter based approach. So after that happened, I kind of knew that, you know, building a business, betting on regulatory outcomes was, was pretty much insanity, right? So, you know, happy to tell the, the rest of the, the, the story, but, you know, we, we eventually did get our, our approach to, to meter-based M&V, you know, kind of into some of the public record and, and DUE actually endorsed it. But that was, you know, two and a half years later and after we'd sold the company. So I think <laughs> one of the things I really realized is that the, the regulatory timelines and startup timelines are, are not really, you know, congruent. Um, you know, the, the average lifespan of a startup is, you know, typically three to three to five years, whereas it can take, you know, as, as all of you, and I'm sure most of your listeners know, three years or more for a, a utility or a public utility commission to make one decision that, you know, meaningfully updates market rules. So to, to paraphrase uh, someone who, who paraphrased Martin Luther King Jr., um, you know, we're in quotes today, uh, the arc of utility response is long, but bends towards compliance. Um, and the problem with that, of course, um, is that while the arc of utility response is long, a startup's runway is not. So, you know, I kind of had this allergic reaction because I realized if I'm going to like bet on, you know, the kind of utility and, and regulatory system for monetization, it's going to be, a, you know. Okay, not, so you had an allergic reaction to the PUC, regulatory yeah, bodies, not the ERs necessarily, right? Or were you yeah, like, did well, you then be like, oh, DERS, like, this is never know, the gonna happen. Is over. you were kind of like, rejected you went into like selling ads for google or something like what was next no, <laughs> after I, mean, that? I got i guess cynical or realistic in a different way so the other um learning of that is you can monetize you know energy efficiency and other durs but there's this big you know kind of 
toll collector called the utility that you have to you have to do it through. So I spent a couple of years after that. We pivoted our business model, you know, from this kind of open markets, you know, super super innovative social networking platform to one where we're essentially I was successful, but it was uh, selling white label software to utilities mm. to help them meet their their energy efficiency goals. And so what we realized was the only real way, at least at that time, to monetize DERS, right? was to essentially sell, do an enterprise sale, so it would be a B2B to C, which is a, you know, a pretty challenging approach and a pretty challenging business model. So I spent a couple of years filling out you know, 100 page RFPs and just banging my head against the wall. And you know, honestly, I, I just never wanted to do that again, which was one of the inspirations for SEAL's business model, which um, you know, for the most part does not, does not rely on you know, regulators or utilities to, to be successful. It, it's so interesting. I feel like everyone I know who does something cool in this space has followed a similar arc, like idealistic to disillusioned to cynical to like, oh, wait, I have a solution. Like I've, yeah, I have battle gra- scars and now I know how to move forward on Twitter where like, you, you know, trough of disillusionment and then you kind of come back up. It's like, yeah. it's, it's like, like that like, for founders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just have to like go be a monk in a cave for two years and then you emerge with like the grand solution. Yeah, yeah. Well, the problem of course though is you is you can come up with all the solutions that you that you want, but you know, even if it's the best one and even if you get everyone to agree, you gotta you gotta be able to uh, survive for, you know, three years or more to see it see it implemented. Oh yeah, this is a this is a classic D E R task rule. force rule of life, which is don't die. Don't die. I think that yeah. is we should just sort of like you know, indoctrinate that yeah, as like the golden. the and don't die. That's those are the two. Those are the two rules of the DR task force. If there is one competitive advantage we've had at Sealed, you know, is we just we just don't die. We just, we just stick around <laughs> until, until something good happens. No, that's super it. cool. I mean, you learn. It is valuable. Like I think a lot of people should. That's like the most important lesson to understand in our space. Like you have to build a business model that wins today, but is like positioned for any further regulatory change to act as a tailwind on the business as opposed to like betting on that future state. Cause we all want this like hyper connected, like DER marketplace we always talk about, but like, I don't know, maybe a decade, <clears throat> who knows, maybe more, but yeah. you have to like find ways to win in, in the interim. Yeah. I mean, you were doing that in 08 and then I think like in 2017, like 20 blockchain companies were like, we can gamify <laughs> energy efficiency. Look at us go. And then I don't think any of them are around anymore. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, so I would true. really, I would really recommend any like startups that are that are or you know founders or people just in the industry that are like at the the early stage of their of their derpilled career to read regulatory public utility commission documents and more importantly go to some hearings and like get a sense of like the people how they think how they talk like I was blown away we did a you know 2008 we did a hearing. And you know, I was I was feeling so confident. I was so excited. We had brought on this guy Nick Hall, who was one of like the godfathers of M and V as our as our consultant. And he'd written up this whole M and V plan and cited all of these you know great precedents for why we were doing you know could be the case. And we had him had him testify uh, to to the to Connecticut uh, PUC. And the first question that he was asked, which set the tone for the entire hearing, the first question that he was asked. By the by, the PUC staffer was, uh, are you lying on your resume about where you went to college? Because he had 
University of Illinois Springfield, and she, well, rightly pointed out that University of Illinois' main campus is Champaign-Urbana, and he correctly also replied to that, that actually uh, he was so old that he went to University of Illinois when it was in Springfield, not Champaign-Urbana, which is also why he's got so much experience. But it was like, it was like nasty and accusatory and just like weird, frankly. And I just felt like I was living in like an alternative universe. And like, that's a lot of, I think, what, you know, what, what folks like us really fight against when we're trying to change the market and change the space. That's wild. That is, that is so much. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So you've, you got derpilled, you, you did some pivots, you figured out like sealed is it. We got the business model. Where are you 20 years from now, 40 years from now? Like, what does that look like? Are you, you know, where do you want to be? You personally, not yes. necessarily sealed. Oh, wow. Not it's just sealed. getting very, yeah. Yeah, wow, we like to start very off personal, really. Very personal plan. <laughs> <laughs> Colleen's going to be our president with Kieran, by the way. Yeah, so Kieran and I are running like, on a ticket. That's together. a standard answer. Yeah. They have an abundant energy ticket <laughs> that we're pushing. So, I got it. Fair enough. Well, obviously, I hope that I'm a, a very uh, wealthy person from from all of my sealed sealed stock. I hope that I can uh, help others in different ways in the industry uh, be be faster in their learnings than than I was, and their and their and have a better trip than I did in their in their dirt journey. Um, and you know, I also hope that I will have done something that really helps to modernize our our state regulatory structure, maybe on the federal level, but honestly, I think, as we all know, the, the state states are really where the action's at. Um, and I think that there's a lot of really great opportunity and, and work that can be done to update the kind of the, the regulatory compact that, you know, goes unwritten for the most part, um, but, but obviously, you know, drives a lot of the, a lot of the rulemaking that, that occurs in the industry. So I, I heard kind of two answers in there. One is Duncan's, which is he's rich from all his uh, scale stock and in Portugal, just hanging out because it's like he's like a, you just know, like giving advice out on like Twitter. He can't, he's just out of the game. Yeah. Like tweeting, <laughs> <laughs> which is where you, the, the, maybe you're there or you're like in the trenches with, you know, young entrepreneurs and regulatory bodies. Those could not be more different. So. <laughs> Well, I, no, I think those go together, actually. Um, so, so one, uh, got to be specific about Portugal. I would choose the Azores because I think they're like awesome. They're like the islands. They're, they're awesome and they're closer to the U.S. So I just want to be specific about where in Portugal <laughs> I'm going to be hanging out. Um, but number two, you know, I mean, if you've got, if you've, if you've been successful enough, right, you can afford to do, do things that you might not do if you're optimizing for you know, for, for salary or for, for income at different stages of your life. Love it. Yeah. Fewer, fewer constraints. Yeah. yeah. Give, give zero, give zero Fs basically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, we have a DR task force headquarters coming up and in, in like, you know, the next decade, maybe like two years, five years, 10, when we're all rich and we just kind of like are still shit posting from the Azores. It'll be like, it'll be like Soho house from a small fishing yeah. village. No, it'll yeah. be like Soho house, but like a lot less cool. <laughs> no, it'll be way more cool. Yeah, time. I was like, sick. yeah. <laughs> Just depends who you're talking to. I don't think you need a heat pump in in Portugal, though. Uh, it's pretty uh, warm there. Depends where you are. All right, why don't we yeah. why don't we jump into the meaty stuff? All right, so obviously we want to talk about electrification and heat pumps today. I think most listening to the podcast are familiar with the concept. You know what what folks are trying to do with electrification, which is essentially 
convert as much energy load to electricity as possible and then use cheap, abundant, resilient, clean energy to power all that stuff to the greatest extent possible. That's kind of like a macro theme going on right now. We're really interested in what that implies, though. Like, let's assume that's happening. That changes a lot of things, right? Uh, we recently spoke with uh, Mary Powell at Sunrun about this, about, you know, electricity kind of becoming the fundamental global commodity, right? That sort of is behind everything. It's it's part of the way there already, but more so will be than ever. But how does this really happen, right? People have to want it, right? It's not just something that can kind of be forced top down. So let's start with heat pumps. Like, why should someone want one? What beyond an incentive being available or like, you know, broader national goals? Why does somebody want one of those things that's right above your head right now? Yeah, for those for those who uh, who are not not watching on video, I've got my Daikin Amura heat pump above me here, keeping it me nice, nice. And, nice and comfortable during our during our chat. So so do things. So one, I think you know heat pumps are actually a great a great example of the market changes that that are happening and the challenges that the really the the industry and policymakers have to to really keep up. Um, and the market kind of changes or what's happening that's really driving that is driven by number one, the fact that heat pumps are are awesome. So they are more comfortable, they keep you more comfortable, they're cleaner, and they take up less space, they're quieter, safer, healthier. Basically they're just better, right? I can go through a bunch of all you know lists of things that, that I've experienced in my home since since getting heat pumps. But they're just a better technology. Um, now they're also different, right? They're 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 obviously powered by electricity. They are more expensive upfront costs, but lower operating costs uh, over time. And they also have different impacts on on the grid, as I'm sure you know. We talked with with Mary or others about, and that has different implications for the utility system and for and for policy. Yes. I got heat pumps last fall, and huge. Okay, I don't want to hear the like paper on paper. Like I want to hear the direct experience. You guys have walked into a room and be like damn, I'm glad I have a heat pump. Like what, yeah. what is that? Because I have nine square feet additional in my downstairs, which for a New York apartment oh, is That's huge. like 40% of your, that's, of the apartment. It's a new, there's a whole new room. <laughs> it's like a new room. We just knocked out the, the closet where the furnace was. And now my child plays there where there used to be a furnace. Yeah. I mean, for us, that's sick. For us, a couple, a couple of big things are different. Um, so first off, you know, my, my, boiler was not cold climate, right? Everyone talks about like cold climate heat pumps and can they can they get up to snuff? And, and my, my boiler were just, we were cold all the time. So once we put on the <laughs> heat pumps, we could actually get warm. And then the other thing was our son's room, you know, we need to keep pretty climate controlled and it would, it could just really go up and down based on the, you know, based on the, the system responding or not, the, the fossil system responding or not to to the temperature um and so with the heat pumps we're able to keep that room like very very climate controlled which just gives us like such such peace of mind but how it feels it just kind of feels the temperature that you set it at and you don't have to kind of guess like oh do i need to set the thermostat at 72 but then i'll really feel 68 so i need you, know, you kind of play these thermostat games when you have fossil systems whereas with heat pumps particularly with 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 ductless systems like what we have, you can really, really design the temperature to be whatever whatever you want it to be. And it's really quiet, right? Like with our old system, we had this um, big in-wall air conditioner and we'd have to like change the the sound, the volume on the TV based on whether it like kicked on or not. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's like super. That's actually true. My window unit, if I go like three, you know, on the highest setting, I'm like, 
I can't sleep. I, I did um, I did a lot of our research when we were putting together our, our climate control plan, our heat pump plan, and probably the biggest emotion I identified when I was talking to people was around their hatred for window air conditioners. It was just wow. so palpable. Hmm. And, and it, was, it wasn't just about their operation, but it was like removing them and putting back in. And like someone was like, why do they have to put like literal like razor blades on the back of these so that like I my hands <laughs> chopped up every time I do it, right? It's just, it's, just, it's just not great, not great technology. Yeah, or you just don't take them out if you live in New York. I feel like- you Just let the cold air in. Yeah, well that's, that's what I did. the overheating of the- uh, Oh, the radiators. <laughs> I feel like the first thing you mentioned, a lot of people don't realize that that furnaces are typically like they're off or they're on. So you're con- it's constantly like overshooting and undershooting the desired temperature where this heat pump is actually sort of finding that exact output needed to yeah. maintain temperature. And just the, one of the analogies smooth. I love is it's like if you were driving a car, but you could only make it go forward or stop by turning the ignition on or off. Right. That would be a pretty, a pretty bumpy yeah. ride. Um, whereas heat pumps, especially the, the newer kind of inverter-driven heat pumps, they're able to you know to really smoothly go from one temperature to the next that's and sick. keep it there. So you get consistent temperatures. And that's actually really important for health reasons for a lot of people that need to have consistent temperatures, not just for, for babies, but for people with, you know, with cancer or elderly or other health conditions. Keeping a constant temperature is a must, which is a, a big driver. And I- this is super uh, probably something we don't want to go down so just give me a yes or no but does that mean you could do like frequency reg with inverters as a service like to the grid we hope so um you know i think that um the heat pump as a der is something that is talked about a lot but from what i've seen there isn't a ton of great tech yet around using it as a resource. Um, and that's largely because it's only now starting to become really a, a big heating load or a big electricity load in the winter. And that's one of the, you know, I think big utility and policy challenges is, you know, what I, I like to always say, you know, winter is coming and we should not be building our system and valuing energy efficiency and other DERs for today's grid, but for tomorrow's grid, which I usually call it like the shadow, like the shadow peak or the shadow grid, right? So, you know, a lot of what mm-hmm. we do today, right, is based on kind of historicals, maybe going up a few bips or what have you, but we really need to be thinking about what the value is for, you know, for other DERs as well, right? Insulation, demand response, et cetera, for what that, what that grid's going to look like in you know, right. 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because that happened in, I'm going to mess up exactly what the rule change was, but I remember in like PJM, they had a winter peak one year, I think because they had a lot of like electrification of heating, right? Just just heat pumps were like a thing that you could do more in Southern states earlier. Um, and then that like switched like DR, they had to have like winter capacity and summer capacity. Cause everyone was like, I can't do AC DR <laughs> in winter. Like that's not a thing I can do. <laughs> yeah. um, and so all these like resources they thought they had to call on, like they didn't really have to call on when it happens in the winter. Mm. Yeah, it seems like a pretty fundamental mistake. <laughs> they never well, had a winter peak like, before, right? So, like to that point, it's like if you haven't thought about yeah. it, like when you think about these resources and when they're available and what you can call. And I mean, you see it in Texas too, right? In terms of like what happens when you have a peak in a shoulder season, and everyone's like, oh, nothing works the way yeah. it's supposed to anymore. 
Well, you've also yeah. got there. You've got the climate denial that's basically driving misforecasting of the of the demand. That's a big mm, interesting. Well. Yeah. Duncan, you this is like your pet problem. You talk about this all the time. How like the historicals aren't gonna like work anymore. That's so that's of oh, like yeah. demand with our existing system, but then then you add on like heat pumps and EVs. So it's like different climate and different resource mix. So it's like. Well, and, and it's happening fast. Like EIA just came out with their 2020 data on, on the you know, heat pump and, and, and heating cooling front. And U.S. homes heated by heat pumps grew about 60% between 2015 and 2020. That's not even taking into account some of the, you know, I'm sure growth that's happened in the last couple of years. So the, you know, the grid's changing. Like these, these markets are changing. People are starting to adopt heat pumps at a really, at a really fast clip. I mean, literally Con Edison, you know, blew their entire, uh, their five-year budget, right? Yeah. yeah. Whatever, how you remember Con Ed, but like in like less than, you know, four months basically. So the demand for this is is really is really taking off quickly. And so whether whether the utilities and whether the regulators and the policymakers are ready for this, it, it's coming, right? And people the, the the markets are moving, consumers are choosing. And so I think it's gonna be a really big um, kind of inflection point in in what's gonna happen with you know with with how we view how we view heat pumps and what that means for kind of broader electrification and, and durs management. So my family home has radiator heat. Mm-hmm. So I actually kind of like that heat. Like it, you, it feels different than forced air heat for sure. So is there one, you're saying there's control over the temperature itself, but then is there all like, what about like humidity and like any other, like, you know, the not, you know, other, I guess like qualities of the air in the house. Can you like tell when you're in heat pump house? Well, the, first off, like, does the air feel better or cleaner? Like, yeah, what is the compared to say I mean, a I mean, boiler system? I mean, it's, it's objectively cleaner air, right? You're not you're not burning, you know, fossil fuel dead dead dinosaurs in your in, in your basement. Um, a lot of the more modern heat pumps as well have like air filters or air cleaning in inside the technology, so it just is better. I have a horrible sense of smell, so I couldn't tell you like this air smells like this and that air smells like 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 that. So some people may be able to do that, but it feels you know it, it feels clean and it objectively you know is is cleaner. But again, most importantly is it's is it's consistent and it's it's a lot more controllable. Okay, so heat pumps are dope. Right. We can make a hoodie or a sweatshirt like that because they are. It sounds like they perform very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So. Andy, like a second ago, you were talking about adoption and how it's like starting to really pick up. Sounded kind of up into the right to me, um, you know. And we've established why people are doing this, but I'm really interested in then how they'll adopt this, right? So traditionally, I don't know, just what I remember as a kid, and I think what most people can speak to is most of the time when you get something HVAC related. You just get it when the last thing breaks. You call the last guy who installed it. Maybe his like sticker is on it from 20 <laughs> years ago. And you're just like, hey, I'm in trouble, man. Like winter's in a month. Like put something in here. Is that how heat pumps are going to get installed? Or is there some newer sort of value chain that's going to Or have you already sold to that, that guy? Uh, like, uh, yeah, how's it? Yeah. How's it going to sort of shake out? Is the customer's sort of like experience in, in adopting this tech going to be different than it used to look? Uh, I think so. So the big, you know, whenever you have a technology disruption and, you know, heat pumps, particularly cold climate heat pumps 
are a technology disruption, right? They are better, but they're also different, which means, you know, you're seeing this in, in, in electric vehicles right now as well, right? More people are buying electric vehicles online, for example, than are, than are going to dealerships, right? There's a whole big fight that Tesla's happen, having with, with, you know, a lot of the, the kind of crusty old uh, dealership laws. Yeah. Um, and it has some other unique characteristics as well. It's higher upfront cost, but you're getting two in one. So it's like you're, you're basically getting this great deal, which by the way, was the number one thing that when we did a survey that people were excited by was the fact that it, that it does both cooling and heating in one system. People were kind of like blown away by that just from, a, from both a practicality perspective and from a, from a coolness factor. So it's essentially like buying an air conditioner and a heating system at the same time. And that's like when you net out the economics, that's roughly what it, what it looks like. So it's a different buying behavior. It's a different framework. I and mean, so it's much more a solution buy than it is a product buy. Um, you know, what we've seen is the kind of normal buying psychology for, for HVAC is something is breaking. And by the way, it usually takes people, there's, I, I think, kind of a misnomer that I've heard this stat that like 85% of people buy, you know, their their HVAC when it when the previous system breaks. I've never been able to find a citation for that. So if anyone has it, either either, either three of you or anyone who <laughs> listens to the pod, please please send it to me. This is contractor <laughs> propaganda. Yeah, exactly. But what but what does happen, right, is people um uh you know broken is kind of a sliding scale, right? People uh, are kind of in, I kind of analogize it to like the, um, you know, the five stages of grief, right? You're in kind of denial for a while and you're trying to bargain, can I get it fixed, what have you? And then eventually there's kind of an acceptance. Um, but where most people's head goes is to first view it as like a, as like a normal appliance. So you're looking at how much does this, you know, how much does this cost? You're trying to find it on the Google or Home Depot website. The problem is you, you realize pretty quickly this is actually not a product purchase. This is um, actually a service purchase, right? You need to get someone to install. You have no idea what system is actually right for your home. Most people don't even know, nor would I expect them to know what like BTUs are or how to compare it, right? Um, and so that's where most people stop though is, okay, I need a service. I'm gonna find a local contractor. I'm gonna get a referral or recommendation. Um, I think the challenge and what we're trying to do at Sealed is to really move people from that service mentality all the way over to a solution mentality where you're saying, okay, I want to, I need a new heating or cooling system, but I don't want to just replace like for like. I want to think about my broader goals in terms of my quality of life, in terms of long-term affordability, um, in terms of, in terms of sustainability or anything else that I care about. And that is much more a direct consumer sale. Um, so what I think is going to happen is that heat pumps uh, and, and, and other DERs, but particularly heat pumps because it's a big part of your are going to be sold um, by direct-to-consumer companies like Sealed much more than they have been historically. Do I think people are still going to buy heat pumps from contractors? Absolutely. But I think, and I think the, the, the contractors that are more and more progressive and put the more effort into learning how to sell them are going to do much better. But I think a large part of the sales are going to be from a direct-to-consumer type companies because you have to do a lot of education and solution development to make this happen, right? You normally need to pair weatherization and electric panel upgrade, a number of other things together in order to have a successful um, installation of this of this technology and to meet people's needs. And so when you do that, right, it's normally going to be a company that's a little bit bigger, a little bit more sophisticated from a delivery perspective. Um, so you're well. saying, yeah, when my when my heater's on the fritz and maybe it's not dead yet, but I'm sort of anticipating that coming, I'm going to go on Google, I'm going to search, like, how should I replace my heating system? And a sealed blog post is going to pop up that's like 10 reasons you should have a heat pump. 
I mean, um, if my if my if my content team is doing their job, yes, hopefully that'll. Uh, <laughs> well, that makes sense. I'm much more likely to Google something than like call a contractor. Oh, absolutely. Phone, right? um, no one wants to do that. No, I, yeah, I was gonna say I, unfortunately, you know, Sealed hasn't entered the apartment market yet. Uh, cause I did, I did reach out. I was like, seal. I was like, I want a heat pump sealed. And they were like, we, we don't do, we won't come and help you yet. So maybe one day I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but that is a good point. But it, I just had to change our, sorry. yeah, no, I was going to say, but it, yeah, it was, I mean, it, for me, it was a journey because I think there is just like this lack of solutioning that contractors are kind of capable of doing in a lot of instances. Like they're kind of used to what they see. They want to come in and like give you what you have or like i had a lot of people that were like keep your furnace we'll put mini splits because i had like a heating load issue they're like we'll put too many splits in the bedrooms and that will solve your problem and i was like no no no, i want the furnace gone and that took me like five contractors to convince them that removing the furnace was a good idea That's it was a lot, lot of, work. of work i was very committed i'm not a normal person <laughs> <laughs> early adopter right here <laughs> well and to that point, Colleen, it no. shouldn't have to be a lot of work, right? We're not somebody, somebody should electrify everything if it's a lot of work. Yeah. Do you find that your customers tend to be like given, given their seat searching sort of like for solutions, whether on the internet, like demographically, do they tend to be younger? So the search volume tends to be younger, um, but not all of those people are qualified. For a service, um, the you know the people who buy, unsurprisingly, are tend to be homeowners, right? <laughs> they tend to be in their uh, in their forever home. Um, just going back to one thing, you know, Colleen, you said before though, is I think it's also really important to acknowledge that that buying habits are changing mm-hmm. overall right now. People are buying houses, you know, sight unseen. I you know people, including myself, you know, are buying cars. Uh, without going to a dealership or seeing them in person. So I think just just habits of totally. purchase are changing pretty significantly. And I think that heat pumps are going to be going to be that category as well. Oh, you know, thinking of that too, not to just keep taking random tangents here, but another buying habit that's changing is corporates are buying a lot of houses, right? Whether it's like BlackRock or like there's some kind of like fintech type companies that are doing this. Are it's a whole different thing, but are they a customer class for these types of upgrades as some sort of like they, they buy the home, they, they spruce it up, give it a new heat pump, and now it's worth more? Uh, I think so. Um, and I haven't figured out exactly how to put the pieces together, but if there's anyone listening to this pod who's in the um, single family rental market <laughs> and wants to, wants to chat about it, shoot me, uh, shoot me a note. I dig it. So, I mean, the, the elephant in the room here kind of is like, it's not that I was, I was like bearish on heat pumps. I just like, didn't, didn't fully understand the value prop, which I, I, I now do. Um, and looking at like the sort of incentive model for solar is like, it really drove down the hardware costs, right? Like we, we did need like manufacturing at scale and that, I don't think that's the case with heat pumps because they've been around a lot longer. Like maybe there are some, you know, but Mitsubishi's like, or, or whoever is making them at scale, you know, already. Um, do you think anything needs to happen like unlocking its value as a DER or, you know, lower soft costs or like, is it also going to be, so right now it's a Tesla that's a little, maybe a little more expensive or not. Is it ever going to be like beat the pants off 
furnaces on, on cost too, if, if all their things being equal, like you're choosing between one or the other, or is it going to be a premium product that is that much better and people are going to adopt it anyways? Like where, where does kind of cost fit into the equation in, in the buyer's mindset? Great question. So, you know, the, the hardware costs are not crazy. Um, there, there is a premium over kind of the fossil alternative. Um, and again, the big difference is it's, it's kind of similar parity to buying both um, a heating system and a cooling system together. So that's kind of the, the biggest divide there. Um, but by far the biggest costs are the, you know, you might call the soft costs, right? Are the installation costs um, and everything that goes along with it. And there, and there, there's a lot of levers um, that I think could be pulled and a lot of barriers that exist to the market today. So for example, in most jurisdictions, um, if, you, if your furnace or your boiler uh, breaks, you can get, um, you, can, uh, you know, a plumber can come in and give you a new boiler or furnace um, and install it and file what's called an emergency permit, which means they don't really have to file a permit until after the, till after it's, till after it's already already done. Kind of, you know, ask for forgiveness, not not permission type type permit. Um, but with with heat pumps, or most of them at least, you're not allowed to do that. So you have to go get a permit before you're allowed to ins- to install the the heat pump, which mm. takes you know can take weeks, sometimes months, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, and causes not only costs, but it's also a, it's not a great customer experience to have to wait that long and have to you know pull deeds sometimes or you know property plans or whatever you have to do to get the get the permit. Um, so you know a lot of what our you know account management team at Sealed does, for example, is tries to you know accelerate the permit process, make sure things that are are filed correctly. I mean that's kind of similar to solar um, right now as well in terms of kind of the soft cost. But that's an example of of one of the of one of the barriers to you know to adoption. Wait, so when we were talking about this uh, last week, how does Ralph Nader tie into this? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like yeah. About NIMBYs yeah, or something? Like, <laughs> well, the damn NIMBYs, man. The permits, the HOAs have gone mad. It's yeah. Heat pumps are dope, but their their permits cost too much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, a, a couple of great – there's a great book that um, was about how the politics of like the 60s and the 70s uh, led to essentially the system we have today where almost anyone can veto any sort of progress, right? Whether it's a zoning change or new laws or new regulations. Um, we just live in a, in a world where um, it's really hard to change. Uh, pub, sorry, Public Citizen um, by, by Paul Sabins. A great book for anyone who hasn't hasn't read it. And it kind of walks through the history. And, and TLDR is it's all about Nathan's <laughs> fault, basically. Um, you know, being a little facetious, but... It is wild. I didn't realize it till we talked, but like the it's almost like the progressive left like through like in the OG in the 60s, 70s, like through almost like democratic processes cre- became like now it's like conservative, like San Francisco, you can't build anything. Yeah. You know, so they're actually like barriers to further well, progress. It's just a wild phenomenon. Yeah. It was very much like um, it became a situation where the liberals didn't trust the government. So instead of making the government better, they said, let's create all these like watchdogs and checks and balances, you know, that are basically from unelected people. Um, it was very like, if anyone uh, is a, you know, a, a history nerd, kind of like 
representatives on mission in the, in the French Revolution, where like they sent all these like revolutionaries like to the ar- with the armies basically, and if the armies weren't doing what they thought they should do, they would like jail the generals and like replace them and <laughs> things like that. Maybe that's a little bit too extreme, but um, but it, but basically it was you know it was basically you know liberals didn't trust their own government, even though that was a big driver of progress in the in the New Deal and Great Society era, um, and so it just created the situation where like nobody could do anything right. Um, uh, and it's actually been like proven academically. Um, there's been uh, recent research, academic research by um, Leah Brooks and, and um, this guy, Zach Liska, who's uh, actually a friend, a friend of mine that we went to college together. And uh, they showed empiric or they showed empirically that um, what they define as citizen voice um, is basically the driver of why things cost so much money to do from an infrastructure standpoint, like why the subway, you know, takes billions of dollars and 70 mm-hmm. years to build like a mile of subway, um, for example, and other other related things. So this is, you know, this is just one, you know, kind of scaling heat pump scaling the electricity system is just one yeah. example of kind of a broader challenge we have. Oh man, we got to grab a beer. Yeah. I'm imagining I'm imagining like Neil Young at the permitting office like no more heat pumps. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, uh, you can always find uh, someone to hate something. Yeah, this is America. Yeah. Uh that's a perfect segue. Um you know, we, we it's this has been become like a topic of ours that we we could go on for forever and hopefully look back to it a bit, but like we just released an episode on on regulatory capture where it is just this like lumbering bureaucracy, not even like the smoky back room, like corruption. It's just like permitting this like morass that kills, kills DER startups. Right. Um, but I don't know. I figured, uh, we, we did want to zoom out and like talk about Colleen. I know this is one of your favorite topics, uh, just like general electrification. So maybe, maybe you take it away, but it's a good segue into that conversation. I think. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think, right. So let's say like heat pumps take off, like EVs take off we have this insane amount of like distribution grid to build out, right? Even if you like think the best case optimization, we still probably have to like double the size of the grid at a very conservative amount, which is, and you know, if we do this in like the time frame we're talking about, it's like, that's in like, I don't know, maybe 20 years. So like, how do we get there? given like utility models we've had 15 years of basically like zero load growth so we aren't i would say even like utilities are you know very well versed in maintaining but like not necessarily at scaling at this point um which is kind of what they're going to need to learn how to do too so like how do you think we get there um well first i always like to um look so you can probably tell, uh, look look backwards to how we got here. Um, and of course, uh, got to throw in some corruption. Uh, in, in, in um, <laughs> there is some, so, for um, sure. <laughs> you know, I was, I'll give you my, hist- my, my amateur history of the beginning of the kind of utility um, business model regulatory compact. So um, I'm from outside Chicago originally. So I- oh, man, you're going to rag on Sammy Insull right now? Oh no, I'm going to praise him. He he's okay, brilliant. Nice. brilliant. Um so so back in, you know, 1897, he's running what's now what's now ComEd in in Chicago. And um, you know, as you can imagine, you know, late 19th century Chicago, Illinois was not the most uh clean government uh, we've ever had in 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 our history. 
uh, and there was this uh, group of aldermen that were called the Gray Wolves. And they took advantage of a new law that had been passed, that had been passed because of some other corrupt person, this guy named uh, Charles Yerkes, who basically passed a law that allowed franchises, like utility franchises, to go from up to 20 years to up to 50 years. So basically, you could have a franchise. There were not monopolies like monopoly franchises like you had today. And so uh, the Gray Wolves uh, basically granted themselves a 50-year franchise, and they thought they were really smart. And they went to Saul and thought that basically th- they thought that they, you know, uh, had him had him beat and said, "Hey, you need to basically buy our franchise or sell to us for some, you know, astronomical amount um, because you know we've got this long franchise and you don't." And of course, Sam Insult, being the great businessman uh, that he was, said, well, actually, um, because I know the industry so well, I've actually bought up all of the licenses, all the technology licenses for everything you could possibly do to, to basically produce electricity. So your <laughs> franchise is worthless. So you actually have to sell that to me. So he kind of did a jujitsu on it. Brilliant business room. So they, the, these you know, uh, corrupt uh, you know, clique of Chicago aldermen sold um, this 50-year franchise to Sam Insull and, and, and Khamed for uh, $1,000 a year, $50,000 for a 50-year franchise. And again, in the amateur history of, of Andy Frank, I think a, a really a light, a light bulb really went off there where he was like, hey, this is the key to really building this business. We need to get regulated. So the next year, 1898, he gives his famous speech to the National Electric Light Association, essentially kind of the utility association of the, of the time. And this is like two years after the 1896 election um, and the populists and William Jennings Bryan and Cross of Gold. And this is a group of basically Republican businessmen. And he's basically telling them, hey, guys, the future of our industry is getting regulated. And they both, you know, they told him he was freaking crazy, right? Like, what are you talking about, dude? Sam, you would get you and your British accent out of here. Like, you're, you're, you're insane. But he was, you know, he was stubborn. And so he worked for about 10 years to kind of get this idea of regulating the utility industry. Industry, um, to be mainstreamed and eventually was successful. And one of the keys to success was he actually kind of uh, teamed up with the leading progressives of the era, um, like Louis Brandt. And he basically created and they basically put out this report from the um, National C- Civic Federation that had a lot of the kind of key aspects of what you'd call the regulatory compact today, right? Including that utilities essentially receive guaranteed rate of return on their capital investments. So a lot of the kind of like, what do you want to call them? The original business models, original sin of, of kind of the state of affairs today was set up in this kind of like deal between, you know, conservative businessmen and the kind of leading progressives of, of the era, which is, by the way, maybe the most brilliant business deal ever, ever done, yeah. right? Like Peter Thiel, zero to one would be singing his praises. <laughs> this, is, this is like brilliant stuff. And it like worked for, you know, 50 years or, or more uh, as load growth, you know, continued to, to go up. And, and I think also one thing that I didn't appreciate till recently is that uh, technology economies of scale continued to, to increase. So basically building, you could build bigger stuff. And when you build bigger stuff, it was more efficient because it was bigger. Um, but then in well, the thermodyna- thermodynamically, right? Like, yeah, it was combustion based technologies. Exactly. Too. Like that may not be true with a solar panel, but um. it, exactly. And so that started to break down come the 1970s as, you know, the energy crisis hits and um, that made continued low growth not to be, you know, not to be seen as as advantageous or great from a 
from an economic perspective, um, and diseconomies of scale started to happen. So you started to see cheaper per energy unit from smaller, you know, from smaller technologies like combined cycle um, gas turbines and some of the some of the renewables that were were happening. Um, and so that just kind of like started to to put a dent in the um, you know in this kind of logic of the of the model. This is like the Purpa yeah, yeah. era. Uh, I'll give another another yeah. great homework. If, if anyone has not uh, read the book Power Loss, highly recommend. It kind of walks through this whole this whole history, um, which is which is really fun. So obviously, you know, bring today the problem now. Obviously, is that this whole regulatory compact, right? This kind of deal between Sam Insull and, and Louis Brandeis and the progressives. You know, a lot of the, the a lot of the ingoing assumptions, you know, are not are not true anymore. And I think the biggest problem is we have this large centralized kind of command and control institutions. Um, everyone likes to blame, you know, either the utilities or the regulators or, you know, sometimes big corporations or government. And the problem is all of those are the same, which is they're all big command and control. Um, but we have a distributed problem, right? We have a distributed market-based problem and we're trying to solve it with kind of the wrong the wrong tools. So I think with all the strain that's happening now between climate change and the rise of DERs and electrification, um, I think it's at a point where a lot of utilities are either going to have to adapt or die as DERs continue to, to, to accelerate. Um, so they can adapt by, you know, really embracing, you know, things like performance-based regulation, PBR. You know, Hawaii started to do this. A few new, uh, some New York utilities are starting to to do it, and it really does. You know, we work, we partner with a lot of utilities, and you can see the difference of utilities that have you know, PBR elements in their business um, and those that don't, right? It really changes kind of the culture and the decision-making, um, which I think is exciting. Um, but a lot of them, I think, are going to die um, by clinging to old paradigm, um, trying to continue to just ram as much rate base uh, as possible um, to, to do all of this. And I think those utilities are going to have kind of a, you know, the utility death spiral. Um, and I think in particular, this is going to happen more often than not at, um, at gas utilities, um, the ones that don't, mm. that don't adapt to a new, you know, to new paradigm. Um, and, you know, that's also going to happen because the electric utilities are going to eat their lunch, right? They're going to be able to kind of take their load. They're going to continue to grow and kind of keep rates, um, hopefully, uh, reasonable um, because of that load growth, Colleen, that you, that you, that you referenced. Um, Wait, wait. So, <laughs> Professor Andy, can you like describe what PBR is for the audience? All I know is it's something I consume a lot of in college. Uh, oh, you don't still? Yeah, I'm, I'm realizing I chose the wrong I chose the wrong beverage uh, for the for the for the podcast. I should. Um, so, performance based regulation is kind of a one of those like generic terms that can mean a lot of things to different people. But the general idea is you're trying to um, reward the utility for um, meeting certain kind of societal benchmarks in terms of affordability or reliability or kind of the, the like KPIs of the utility rather than rewarding them, which most utilities are today, for spending more money. Um, so like a great example of this actually with a lot of people don't think of is um, uh, PSEG Long Island. So PSE&G is a big, you know, kind of you know, traditional utility space in New Jersey, but they, through a kind of accident of history that has to do with the Cuomos, um, they uh, took over, also took over the management of um, LIPA, which is the Long Island Power Authority, which is the technically a municipal utility in Long Island. Um, but they're not the, they don't have a monopoly. They only have a, basically a 10-year contract to be able to manage the utility operations. So they make money, you know, if they meet certain kind of like 
benchmarks or KPIs that are defined by by kind of LIPA, Schmidt. Um, Hawaii is also uh, uh, moving towards this. Um, and then in New York with, with uh, the investor-owned utilities, they have what a lot of them have what's called, or most of them now have what's called EAMs or earning adjustments mechanisms. So they can earn more money. It's kind of a carrot. They also they also get rate based, but they can also get extra money if they hit certain goals that are that are set by the regulators. Um, so that's the but even beneath that, you mentioned the assumptions have changed. So at in Samuel Unsell's day until the 70s and, and DERs, the, the grid was a natural monopoly, the distribution grid. Is that still true today? Well, first off, I think, and this is probably a much bigger topic, um, you know, you could argue it wasn't as much of a monopoly as they, you know, as it was kind of portrayed as at the time. Um, for example, one of the one of the big arguments that was that still is made, right, is that you need a monopoly in order to drive the cost of, of capital down. Um, but if you actually look at the historical right. record, because there was this period of time where uh, some utilities had uh, were regulated monopoly. You know, public utility commissions kind of came up gradually, and other utilities did not have that kind of regulated monopoly status. And if you look at the difference in capital costs, um, it actually was pretty negligible between those those two groups. So I think I think part of this is just you know revisiting some assumptions around what is a natural monopoly and what is and what is not a natural monopoly. Um, and I think especially with modern technology, right? Like you can imagine a new world. I mean, you know, Duncan and Colleen, you guys know this for <laughs> creating microgrids, right? There's a lot of great technology for how you connect. Um, you know, connect the electricity sector. And so you kind of got to think about sometimes counterfactuals of what you're losing when you when you have, you know, when you have monopolies of uh, different kinds. Yep, yep. What do you think um, about? So I mean, one of one of my biggest concerns, uh, it's it's pretty related, but I guess a little, a little more pointed is, right, we're scale, we're starting to work on a number of like fleet vehicle electrification projects. And you know, people want to save money. They want to be more resilient. They want to power it with clean energy. But the number one thing they want is a damn grid connection. And they can't get one fast enough, um, or at least enough of one, right? So it's like two years and a million dollars. And they're like, I want to buy these trucks like right now. Sometimes we can help with them with that. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to. Um, but overall, like, there's another side of this too, which is like, if we actually want to move quickly and not hold up electrification like how do we actually do that right why is it so hard to build out the grid and do these things is it because utilities have like a bunch of other stuff on their minds or they maybe it comes back to incentives um but it you know we're at just the tip of the iceberg here right as everyone starts requesting a, a service upgrade i mean it seems like you know a recipe for like you know la traffic where nothing moves forever you know how, well, how do we deal with this uh, I'm a big believer in incentives and, and getting getting incentives right. Um, uh, if, if anyone was watching the uh, the very excellent um, David Simon show, kind of the successor to The Wire, uh, we we own the city. Um, there was a, a great episode recently where um, this you know group of police officers were talking about kind of why they why they did things or why they didn't things, and it you know at the end the to paraphrase the chorus was. It comes down to the money, right? Like basically they get incentivized for certain things related to overtime or you know, maybe some more nefarious things. You got to watch the show to find out. But basically a lot of it comes down to incentives. And so, you know, if I'm a if I'm a utility and I'm trying to figure out how to build out the grid, how to, you know, interconnect in the in the right way, 
right? The more incentive I have to figure that out, um, the more likely I am to to speed up the process and to and to make that make that happen. Um, you know, you can also do good old fashioned you know command and control regulations sometimes, and and, and making sure that there's um, you know there's certain a right a right of access to the to the grid. Um, but it's a you know it's a system. It should there should be incentives. Yeah. The, this should be a place where the utilities can frankly make a lot of money. Um, and and it honestly kind of surprises me that there hasn't been more activity on that front. And I think it really speaks to the fact that the um, the balance between risk and return in the utility space is is just fundamentally kind of off, right? In other words, in in, in my kind of perfect utility business model, you would have more risk, mm-hmm. but also more return, right? You could make more money because the kind of utility compact is essentially, you know, you're gonna make us, you're gonna guarantee essentially guaranteed a certain amount of money, but you really can't go go above that. So the only way you can juice your returns is by investing a lot of a lot of capital and not necessarily efficiently. So I think you have to create a new paradigm where there's higher return threats. Sometimes can be difficult for regulators to to stomach, right? So they should be able to make a lot more money. Um, but at the same time, there should be more risk that's actually taken in, in doing that. So I wonder too, like even outside of having to make higher returns, one of the biggest issues with the interconnection process I, I've been like that I've been sort of thinking about is it's very project based, right? It's like, I am here and I would like to do mm. this. And then the utility goes and they say, okay, what's in the network surrounding area? Like, is there sufficient power? there's these other 10 projects that are ahead of you. And so like with those 10 projects and your projects, like now we need a grid upgrade. And then like two of those projects drop out and the utility is like, all right, let's start it over. And they're trying to like allocate costs and it's project by project basis because that's what they've been told they have to do. And I kind of feel like, well, let's like take the reins off a little bit and say like, we know the grid needs to double. So just like, go double the distribution grid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I don't, you know, like increase this, like we know like the substations are going to need to get upgraded. Like some of these things, right, are like you, there are all these studies and there's these like attempts to have the mm. utilities be really conservative with how they approach rate payer dollars, which is important. And like, especially in a low load growth environment, when utilities make money by doing infrastructure is like a very important like thing to keep lock on, right? So for the past like 20 years and there hasn't been a lot of load growth and utilities make money only by spending money, you like had to be really careful to not let them just like build a substation because they wanted to earn a return on it. But that has resulted in this whole thing of like these study after study of like making sure that you're only building exactly what you need. And it's like creating this backlog that has this like crazy cycle, Mm. creates all this paperwork because the number of times studies are redone because a developer realizes Mm -hmm. their project can't go through, like, which like, let's be like, face it is very common. Um, (laughs) Like is is just crazy. It's a crazy amount of rework. It's like utilities can also become more efficient at how they do this work, right? Like that's the whole other thing. And that can also be done through incentives um, and allowing them to like earn rates of return on software, right? Which is like a controversial area and regulation. But I just think a lot about that. Like it, it's kind of insane to like know that system wide, we're going to need to massively up, up change the grid, but yet the way that utilities are planning it isn't like on a project by project basis. So I think you hit on something really, really important, uh, and I'll I will make a statement, and then uh, 
and then hopefully back it up. <laughs> but I think that part of the problem is that a lot of the the people in the DERS industry have been captured, whether they acknowledge it or not, by this kind of traditional utility regulatory compact paradigm. So, you know, I was I was at a dinner um, I don't know a month or so ago, and I was and I was talking to someone who's a community solar developer. And and granted, I don't know a ton about this, so I, I like this on the substance of of this, I'll, I can give you my opinions, but they're they're you know take take them take them for what they're worth. But I was asking her about you know her business and you know what her biggest challenge is, and of course she mentioned interconnection was the biggest the biggest challenge, and I like asked her more about it, and she basically came down to the fact that like you know she needs some utility person, you know, bureaucrat somewhere to to give her the okay to move forward to connect these things. But she was really excited because she had some approach or technology that made that easier or what have you. And I, and I kind of was just thinking about them like, well, but, but, but the bigger problem here is that you have this choke point where you have this one person who I'm sure is overworked and is like trying to balance a million things that has to say, you know, yes or no to this or kind of like approve it. And they're doing all these engineering studies. Like that is just insane, right? Whereas like you think of, an analogous industry, like when Amazon built up their, you know, their all their all their different server farms for for AWS, right? I'm sure they had similar types of problems, right? How do I ascribe, you know, this much this much value and cost to all these new people that are coming on, and how do I price things right, etc. And you know, I'm sure they tried a bunch of different things, and some worked and some didn't, but they were essentially trying to. Uh, solve the problem from both a customer acquisition and a system development perspective, right? They were trying to figure out what's a simple enough pricing, what's compelling enough, how do I compare to the alternatives, et cetera. Whereas when you have this very command and control mentality, you, you kind of, you've already lost, right? Um, you've already lost because you're thinking about this from the perspective of like, should I spend more here? Should I mandate that they do this here? And it's just, a, I don't think it's a really a problem that can be solved. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you have to, I think what the regulators need to think about is how do you create the right market structures and the right incentives so that the utilities are solving that problem on their own, right? And they have, again, both the risk and return framework to do that in the, in the right way. And something that I always try to remind myself is that, um, you know, keep in mind that like regulatory constructs and rules are like fantasy novels, right? They are, they are completely made up, but must be internally consistent. Right. So I think we shouldn't really be afraid to change the principles, you know, of some deal, you know, essentially negotiated between Sam Insel and Louis Brandeis yeah. in 1907. <laughs> right. Like we can we can think we don't have to. Yeah. Like stick with canon. Yeah. Yeah. We can. <laughs> yeah. I have a crazy idea here that let me let me wind up to it for a second, though. So I'm hearing a few different things between both of you, which I I think are like really kind of foundational points here. One. um, like Colleen, to your earlier point, I'm kind of like down for, I, I, I like hear what you're saying um, as far as like, could you just like preemptively like upgrade everything and just be like ready for everything to come onto the grid? Um, yeah. You could probably totally, like I see that as, as one potential path. Um, I've always wondered, is there a way to, you know, the reason I always circle back to franchise rights is just like, like competition feels like it has to be like a piece of this. like in designing that regulatory complex, like compact, there isn't competition. And that's what makes it very hard to not look at the, like look over the utilities shoulder constantly and be like, let's make sure you're like, actually need all this stuff you're building. The regulator has to like act as the governor 
on utility expansion instead of like them competing with other entities essentially. And New York tried to do this through like new, new, uh, non basically saying like, if you guys can prove that you're going to save a billion dollars in distribution, um, grid upgrades by building like third party owned DERs, we will pay you some of that billion dollar savings. Like, I think mm -hmm. that is an interesting incentive, but we haven't seen it really go anywhere. Um, so I'm like, kind of you guys are talking in that world, right? Where I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm down. Like, I think there is something to do there. And like, you know, uh, New York Rev is like the first attempt at it. Like non-wires alternatives, like they're, Duncan, you've been talking about virtual wires a lot. The other crazy idea here, uh -oh. which is sort of um, Duncan in the, regu the regulatory capture episode you were talking about, you and Colleen were like, you know, with Uber, they could just like, they didn't, they could just start like breaking the rules, like, and kind of be like, all right, the regulators just have to catch up to us. That's very hard to do on the grid, except Andy, what you mentioned was the choke point being interconnecting. Like that is actually like where you're now like giving control to that command and control, like centralized compact, whatever. So my crazy idea is a partnership with scale and sealed where when you're hitting these permitting snags for six months, you just say, well, fuck you. We're just going to build our own grid. That's going to, we don't need to do the service upgrade. We don't out. need to do We don't need to build more grid. We're going to build the grid right in this person's backyard. And, uh, you know, maybe if we even overbuild it, we could, we could give some, uh, power to, to their neighbors or something. They, they could buy some too, like just run some extension cords or something. So no, but I mean, I, think I, I don't know. I'm, something... I'm kind of messing around, but like, no, but I think totally that real. is like, like, that is the choke point, you, the interconnection. If you don't right? have sufficient power, like, I think it should be totally legit to say like, we're going to build a microgrid on site. We're going to have like some physical hardware that keeps us from over exporting or over importing from the grid. And like, if the it's it, it, and then in three years when the grid's ready for us, like, we'll interconnect that like the rest of it, right? We'll like take out that piece of equipment, right. and now we can export more to the grid. But like, that's exactly what we're doing, right? Like, and it makes so much sense. I mean, that's that's exactly what we're doing on some of these electrification. Yeah. yeah, we're not removing the whole load, but we're just segmenting off the new load. Yeah. You want me to be able to do a community? Yeah. Well, I know you guys are doing it. They're bigger loads. Yes, they're not, they're not homes. But the, the actual question at the center of this is like, well, no, I, whatever, forget. I'm just messing around with the franchise rates thing, but I, I know it just annoys you guys. <laughs> but, but no, it's, it's actually like, is there a way, like could Sealed partner with a, like even you look at the F-150 Lightning, right? Like it's this huge freaking battery um, or a generator or solar. Like, do you need to forget about interconnection, just like upgrading the panel or like, or, or like upgrading the service, you know, uh, Con Ed's running this analysis, like how many heat pumps can we add on this feeder system? Can you just say to the utility, you know what? Um, we're not going to change anything in front of the meter. We're going to like solve this problem behind the meter. And then you don't need permission to do any of it. And what it would actually, like you actually flip the paradigm around and we're like in five years when enough of this is happening, the utility may start seeking these company, like no, I, these interconnections saying, wait, you have all this stuff behind the meter now that actually could be a service to us. And like, they're asking you to interconnect now, you know what I mean? Like instead of, instead of the other way around. So in the, in your point, Duncan, like you're segmenting the new load off, like, is there a way to actually do that at the residential level? I'd, I'd wonder like with, 
solar and, and an F-150 or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's definitely something there. I, I'd say I'll make a very, very broad point, which is that I think um, a lot of the push in this industry um, is my opinion is going to happen a lot of the innovation and push is going to happen behind the meter because of all the friction in front of the meter um, and so you know I don't know exactly the solutions and how you know kind of the push and pull interconnect but I guess my and uh, you are maybe not being crazy enough there's this guy we don't um, get that often yeah oh yeah uh, Sam, That's, I don't hear that often Sam, so that's uh, sick there's this, there's this guy Sam Brooks who's uh, who started this company called Starfish Electric who's going like full full yeah. like full, full off grid so you know you, you can no uh, but it, I mean just, wait Andy do you know what his alternative domain name is oh I do oh I do, oh, I do. It's good. <laughs> so good it's great we um, gotta have this guy. We're, on. we're gonna let people just figure that one out on their own. <laughs> yeah. Um. So James, you're just you're too you're too moderate on this front, I think. If uh, but but I think um but more but again more broadly, my I think the challenge is is like even if you get to that point where like theoretically you have load that should be valuable to the utility, like there's a more fundamental broken issue here, which is that those utilities don't have the incentive to do or, or don't have enough of an incentive, shall we say, to do the things that would that would make logical sense from a business right. perspective. And so it's again for me always like trying to solve the first order problems because if you don't address those in some way shape or form none of the uh, the rest of it really matters right there's so i sort of i set it up in like conflict in a way like what i'm saying and kind of you're in colleen's point which is more like optimizing the regulatory framework but they actually they could be they could work in concert well yeah and and, and frankly like if a you know if if a utility or someone who bought a utility right was like was was uh, or rather I'll, I'll, if I had um, maybe another thing I'll do when my when my said <laughs> stock is worth you know a gazillion gazillion dollars is you know go buy go buy a utility and like what you could do is go to the go to the regulators and say like hey look we're gonna you can call it whatever you want but we're gonna essentially renegotiate the regulatory compact and again the the parameters of that deal is gonna be that we're gonna take more risk right. Um, and we're going to be less incentivized to to deploy capital. So maybe it's a pass through essentially, right? But essentially, we can have the opportunity to make much more profit um, if we're successful in hitting certain goals or in optimizing certain certain metrics. Um, and so it can come from. I think I think the solutions can come from a variety of different places. We shouldn't all just be sitting here twiddling our thumbs until some you know PUCs mm-hmm. decide to decide to decide to do the right thing. Um, but the, the the fundamental problem is we need to is we need to create more markets and we and we need to make the existing markets work better than they do today. We've had multiple people <laughs> waiting for their stock to be worth a gazillion dollars <laughs> who have committed to buying a utility once they we all get together once they're Uber. Yeah. Let's do it. Yes, the, the blood That's oath. what Dirt yeah. Fest is for. Yeah. That's um, what the DRTAS for <laughs> LLC is for. <laughs> okay, Colin, you had Colin, somewhere you were productive say to something. take us. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, so I was I was gonna you know sort of bring us in, into a, a closing question here around this because I feel like it's relevant to what we're talking about right now. So your energies are of America, okay? What one policy do you pick at the federal level? Just you can do whatever, man. You can you can you can full, integrate full it wherever fascist, you want. Like you could say like every state PUC is now doing this. And like, like a, full, and like a and like a real like a real czar, not one of yeah, these. No, 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 like you, like monarchy. You're a real czar. You're right. not like no, no, no. This is not. This is like. This is not like a. I'm I'm a czar. <laughs> this isn't like Richard Kaufman <laughs> and New York Rev. Like. <laughs> 
Shout out, shout Big out, shouts. shout out to Richard. I mean, he's great. Yeah. He's great. Um, he just had to deal with the the policy implications of being the energy czar. Yeah. <laughs> so probably what I would do is, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, so I would uh, part of my wish would be to bring smart lawyers in to write this in the in the right way, appropriate way. Um, yep. But I would pass a appliance efficiency rule that essentially brought the efficiency standards for all, um, well, for all appliances, also also cars, but that's kind of already the case in the cars, um, up to above 100%. So basically, um, you know, the, the Biden administration announced, I think, today or yesterday that they're, um, you know, and frankly, it is kind of historic. The, they're increasing the appliance, um, the furnace appliance standard regulations, or they're proposing it to be increased to um, minimums, minimum efficiency of 95%, right? Um, which, you know, if it happens, it's a good thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to reduce carbon emissions and, and move, move the ball forward. Um, but I think it's missing out on a huge opportunity to raise the bar even higher. So if you had um, kind of a fleet-wide average standard of 150%, let's say, what that would do, which is, by the way, what happened in the EV market, and one of the reasons Tesla has been so successful is they've made a lot of money off yeah. of essentially their competitors, you know, traditional car companies paying them for their, for their zero EV credits. Um, you can basically incentivize all of the HVAC manufacturers, and you can do it for other industries as well, but we'll stick with HVAC, mandate all the HVAC manufacturers to basically meet this average or buy credits from those that are exceeding it. So you create basically a marketplace without spending a dime of taxpayer money. You create a marketplace that you can increase with a pretty easy lever over time to eventually get us to full to either full electrification or at least Something. zero carbon yeah. Um, emissions. Yeah. Um, without having to do all this command and control stuff, right? You have one lever, you, 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 you look at the percentage, and then basically it creates a smart market for all of these manufacturers to compete against each other to become as efficient as possible and to deploy heat pumps and other efficient technologies as quickly as possible. I feel like this is the most thought out, like specific <laughs> yeah. policy that we've gotten that we've gotten so far. I was expecting you to be like fix the interconnection process, and you're like an energy efficiency guy at heart, and I love that. And you're like, it's amazing. Cafe I have it planned out. Yeah. No cafe. You know what I'm going like, to do? I got to talk cafe about what was I love. Like super yeah. successful. Like you look at like cafe introduced, and yeah. then efficiency just started it's going insane. like bonkers in the car market. Yeah, the yeah. only uh, the only problem with cafe was that they did, made a the big distinguishment between like white trucks. Yeah, so yeah, so you got. This is why I need a good lawyer to make sure to close all those loopholes, <laughs> right? But like, yeah, it was, it was insane. Wait, the other thing you said that blows my mind is I think you asserted that Elon owes something to the government to his success. Is this true? <laughs> what? I mean, hot, hot takes, hot takes, but uh, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know it based on the... You uh, wouldn't know it from his Twitter. <laughs> it's funny because there's actually like the the right has started like, or, or like likes Elon as a business magnate. But if you go like further, like deep conservative right, they actually are like Elon's a fraud. He's just taking handouts from the government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it it goes yeah it goes it goes across the spectrum. I think like many of us, Elon shows up in my friends' text text threads a lot. For yeah, the, the narrative machine is just a tornado now. There's really no like <laughs> continuum. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> 
Look, I, I, you know, if he, I mean, maybe I don't, I, I don't think it's a master plan, but if he's doing what he's doing in order to, you know, make uh, buying EVs a conservative, you know, MAGA thing, like more, more power to him, right? We need, we need bipartisan. Uh... He's like a psyop. <laughs> <laughs> he's rebranded Tesla for the. Yeah, we need a, a yeah. bipartisan for the greater approach. good. Yeah. That's a great. I know we I know we were going to skip this because we're short on time, but really quick, a strong because then we're going to do dope or nope with our last five minutes. So we've got like two minutes on this. Um, What's like on a kind of part of that? Okay, so that's that's a great policy. But like everyone who's not an energy nerd just went to sleep. So like what's like an actual you mentioned bipartisan. I actually could you tell the story about that you told us in the call about like your founding team, like designing like bipartisan climate narratives or even just like broader political narratives. Like how do we reunify the country, like get rid of political division and also like make, you know, as part of that clean energy, um, you know, super bipartisan where it's, where it's pretty divided right now. Uh, well, I have no idea how to like unify the country <laughs> overall. Um, I think, uh, it's maybe beyond the scope of this, of this podcast. Um, we're working but, on it. Um, <laughs> So, so for context, um, I'm a you know dyed in the wool Democrat, um, president of my college Democrats, um, and my my co-founder uh, Lauren is a conservative. She's a Republican. She was on like you know Fox News in college, and I'll never forget when um, we first connected and and um, and uh, started working together. Um, my my lead investor um, like you know had Googled her and like emailed me and was like, Andy like. Did you know that Lauren's a Republican? And I was like, like blown away that I would like work with someone like this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know. But it's she's cool. like, you know, she's, 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 like we need, cool. we, we need, we need people who you know think think differently and uh, um, and you know have a, a different mentality. Um, but you know, so we really believe in you know in in, in bipartisan clean energy at, at Sealed, and you know, to me and to and to Sealed, right? What that really means is, you know, more clean energy is more and better markets, right? We've talked a lot about markets. So I think one thing that turns you a little bit libertarian is being a startup founder, right? As you see kind of all the, all the you know, kind of challenges you have to face in, in building a company, especially in this space, in the regulated space. Um, but more and better markets equals more innovation, um, ultimately equals a better quality of life, right? Like we don't sell heat pumps or weatherization or, you know, or any DERs on the basis of saving the planet or, you know, Take people that, that want to do that, yeah. you tell them that, right? Um, saving energy or even saving money on your bills. The big value proposition that we're sending that we've seen really resonate kind of across, you know, political parties and across, um, you know, across political views is better quality of life, right? Everybody wants to be more comfortable in their home. Um, I, I remember being uh, at an energy audit once and uh, this guy who for, um, I will not tell you how I knew this, but it was very clear that he was of a different political persuasion than me in our, in our conversation. Um, and, you know, we were going through the, the audit and at one point he just got very frustrated and he just said, I just don't want to be cold anymore, um, using a little more colorful <laughs> language than that. And it just hit me that, that was like the emotion that we're trying to really tap into are people that just want to mm-hmm. improve their quality of life. And that's really a, that's really a bipartisan issue. I love that. Hello Comfort it says it on your website. I'm sold. Hello. Exactly. Give me a heat pump. Exactly. My my apartment climate is, right. is is garbage. So we're all Democrats <laughs> and Republicans at the end of the day. I changed my 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 party affiliation. Oh my god. That's almost as good oh, as Kendrick's Democrats right. and Republicans, but. Uh, 
one step behind. <laughs> We're working on it. So to yes. close us out, our favorite segment, Dope or Nope, um, basic segment, rules. Tell us if you think this is dope, a.k.a. good or nope. You can give us reasoning or you can just let it let it live. So, okay. First one, geothermal heat pumps. Um, it's binary. There's no middle ground. I would say dope. Okay. I will say dope because uh, they're really cool technology. Um, uh, and uh, there's a lot of different kinds of geothermal. So I will I will not go into my dope versus nope about individual uh, types of it. But I will say overall as a category, dope. We'll take it. Okay. We'll take it. Uh, distribution utilities. Dope. Small modular nuclear. Dope. We got all the dopes here. Franchise rights. To what? Uh, as in, like changing them. Um, as in today's. the existence of them. Today's franchise rights. Uh, today's franchise rights. Nope. But I think that there is a dope oh, version of franchise. We got to get a beer, man. <laughs> okay yeah i was like that's that's the next next time you're on here franchise rights biden's dpa for heat pumps uh this is a hard one i mean the honest answer is i don't know yet um i so i will i will not answer this but i will give you a f hopefully a funny thing that will that will satisfy the question so credit this to my brother Try to appease we were, we the dope or nope gods this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I think I think my answer will more clearly uh, give you my give my thoughts on this. So, for any Portlandia <laughs> fans, there's this like uh, this famous skit where they go and they put a bird on it um, for, for for everything. Um, so this idea credited my brother, uh, who who actually is in politics. And uh, so we were talking about this. My brother was like, "Yeah, you know, you know, doing Defense Production Act is kind of like put a bird is now like the new like political like put a bird <laughs> yeah. on it, right? Like you kind of like." Anything you want to do, it's like, hey, uh, you know, we're going to do, we, we care about heat pumps, Defense Production Act, like we care about COVID, Defense Production Act. So, you know, I think it's like the, the kind of the policy, um, it's a popular policy thing. I think it could be effective. Um, I don't know enough about it to know whether Andy, it's I'm hearing actually nope, going to move the needle. That's but. a nope. That sounds like a nope to me. Yeah, that's a, that's a qualified <laughs> so, nope. Um, I know you didn't want to say it, but we, we'll say it for you. Uh, okay. It could, so it we're could at, be dope. dope I just not, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It could be dope. Yeah. Um, just like okay. franchise rights, so, there's, a, there's a dope version of it. Yeah. With with that, should we should yeah. we move to big yeah. shouts? Do you know how big so shouts that. works? Big shouts. Uh, I think you have to remind me. So it's just you just say big shouts to, and then someone you want to give big shouts to. So like big shouts to Richard Kaufman. We are giving big Thanks. shouts to Richard Kaufman. We are. Where is great. what's he doing these days? He is at. He's in Portugal. Yeah, he's probably Portugal. No, I feel like he's like I feel like he's like somewhere random. All right, this is this is distracting. Big shouts time. Just rattle them off. We'll <laughs> we'll shouts. start. Big shouts to Sealed for taking on an awesome problem and coming up with a real solution. Um, I'll give uh, I'll give. I mean, there's so many big shouts to give to. Well, first I have to just give, rip them off, man. I have to you give big just... shouts out to the to the entire you know Sealed team, not just the current team, but everyone that's kind of being part of the been part of the journey. Um, both. Uh, employees, uh, you know, consultants, investors, kind of everyone. This is a, a team effort to get, you know, to get a company as far as, as far as we have. Um, obviously got to get a to shout to uh, shout back to, to Kieran, who's, you know, one of, uh, I think this like class of uh, 
of crazy entrepreneurs um, that have been doing this for for way too long and have you know kind of been the survival survival mode. And he was an energy efficiency guy too. That's the yeah. You guys yeah. cut your teeth yeah, in the real uh, stuff. Yeah, he's I'm sure got some some crazy stories with uh, his world. Um, and then uh, I got to give a, a shout uh, a shout to uh, uh, to Di Ellis, who's uh, who is quickly becoming uh, the kind of uh, clean tech uh, coach whisperer uh, guru uh, guru. Yeah, this has been really helpful. <laughs> All right, I'm giving big shouts to the like the 50 year old interconnection engineer at the utility who's just massively overworked and doing their best and is like doing the most thankless job in this industry. Big shouts to the design engineers. Yeah, yeah. they're out there on pen and paper uh, <laughs> marking yeah, yeah. things up over and over again. I want to give um, also big shouts to the like, I forget the name of the company, but this like random company that lobbied for some for the thing that randomly became Purpa, which really kind of like, you know, as we know, trying to kind of change the game. Oh, yeah. It was like, a very random, you know, set of circumstances that came together to, to create, nice. you know, big one. shouts to Sammy Insall. <laughs> big shots, big shots yeah. to Sammy Insall. Yeah. He was treated yeah. dirty at the end too. He was treated so dirty. Oh, I actually don't know what happened. Um, big shouts to Ice Age Mechanical guys. That's who finally gave me my Oh, nice. They're giving Sammy Insall. Uh, so he basically became, um, like a man on the run in Europe because he was at a subpoena. <laughs> I mean, uh, the the like Roosevelt administration subpoenaed him, and he ended. Up, he had horrible health, so he was like going from place to place. He ended up getting arrested, kind of tricked, um, in Istanbul in Turkey or some or someplace in Turkey, and getting like extradited back to the U.S. Where he oh should have gone to Portugal. He should have gone tried, to Portugal. Yeah, you know, had to do with where extradition. Treatment. Big shouts to the Azores. Big shouts um, to the Azores. Yeah. <laughs> And big shouts, what, Colleen, to your mechanical contractor? Oh, Ice Age Mechanical. Yeah, the fi- people that finally came through. So, you know, if you own your own apartment system in New York. No, no, no. Sealed's going to do it eventually. Uh, big sh- I have to give big shouts to my wife. Uh, to, you know, I would not be able to be a, you know, dumb, poor entrepreneur <laughs> for a long time without, without her support. <laughs> um, and big shouts, I mentioned, to all of our contractor partners who kind of do the real, who do the real work uh, um, at Sealed. Yeah. And- and actually, you know, install. Yeah, things. big shouts to contractors, for All sure. All right, I think All that's. Right. I think that's I think a wrap. Great, Andy. Thanks for joining us. This was fun. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Did good in the Thunderdome. You're now <laughs> yeah, you came out alive. From <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, survived. <laughs> yeah, you survived, Professor Andy. All right, thanks. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Thanks, Andy, for your great takes on the industry, and we look forward to seeing what's next at Sealed. Make sure you're all subscribed to our newsletter at dertaskforce.com or our Substack. One more shout out that Andy specifically asked me to include was for Pat Sipinsley of the Urban Future Lab, a Brooklyn-based cleantech incubator. Funny enough, the conversation I had with Andy's co-founder, Lauren, early in my startup career included them both praising the Urban Future Lab and Pat specifically with their great programming and connections to partners and investors. It was even a small reason why my company, Urban Energy, joined the Urban Future Lab years later. Also, one more big shout out to Nabil Shalampat, who's our new podcast editor, who's introduced to our community through Alex Bloomberg of Gimlet Media. So thank you both for your contributions to the community. Lastly, be sure to stop by one of our monthly happy hours at the Urban Energy office in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Talking to ETL soon.